Happy to be in the 1030. This is the crowd I know. The nine, the nine though, they clap a lot. Like, don't, don't take any of that. Like, they were clapping the, the ladder carrier. So you guys, you know, you should, yeah, there you go. Yeah, they were just, they were in a clapping mood. They were like four applause in before I even got started. Um, yeah, so uh, I know most of you, for those of you who don't, I'm Stephen. Uh, I do most of my important teaching up here with the, uh, the fourth and fifth graders. So, um, But yeah, like, uh, yeah, there you go. I'm going to be like six applause in with you guys. Um, yeah, so uh, like Clayton said, I, um, I teach now at Criswell College full time. Also sometimes have classes over at DTS, so, um, but it's an honor to be here, uh, be here today. So last summer, uh, my family was part of the Costa Rica mission trip, which uh, just as a plug is, um, is happening again this summer and is always a great time. So if you're interested in a mission trip, uh, Costa Rica one's fantastic. But uh, as you can imagine, if you haven't been on that trip before, every day, you know, in a mission trip type environment, it's just like, it's a, it is a load. Like, it's a good load. Like, you, you know, it, it's a fun time, but like, you are just worn out at the end of the day. And the transportation to and from where we're ministering versus where we're staying, it's in um, somewhere, I think somebody, I asked in the first service, somebody called it a minibus, which I don't even know what that means, but somewhere between a van and a bus. And generally what happens is all the kids will run in at the end of the day and they will sit in the back of the bus because like that's the cool place for them to sit and all the adults will sit in the front of the bus because I mean we don't want to be in the back of the bus first of all you got to get back there and then the whole thing so anyway first day or so happens uh, this past summer and it's just a long day and anytime you have you know, more than three people talking about the important things in life. At some point, there'll be disagreements. And uh, so we're driving along, and in the back, they're like all the kids, and it's like this low rumble of like revolt that's happening in the back. When are we going to eat? When are we going to eat ice cream? You know, the, the important issues. And so at some point, I guess she was kind of somewhere between the kids and the adults. Uh, Clay, uh, Caitlin Burke, um, she starts to like feel the tension. Now, if you're a parent, you're used to this, and you're just like, whatever. You know, there are no fires. We're fine. Um, but Caitlin feels like she needs to appease the masses. So she turns around, and she says, hey, guys, I've got a question. Are there more doors or wheels in the world? Now, Caitlin meant well, you know, but if anything, this didn't quiet the disagreements this brought the disagreements to the fore. So uh, some kids believe there were more wheels than doors. Some kids believe there were more doors than wheels. The way they handled it was to start to argue over what is a wheel and what is a door and why this is important. Um, So finally, we get to food. Everybody settles down. We go about our day. This uh, second day, we're coming back. Caitlin's learned her lesson. She's not talking about any kind of question, wheels, doors, what have you. All of a sudden, one of the kids in the back says, you know, I I was counting today the number of wheels and doors I've seen, and away we go again. And and I wanted to start here because I wanted some kind of, like, introduction that had to do with disagreement, and there's so many places, like, in our world today, we have disagreements that I don't want to talk about, you know? Like, I could talk about the big disagreement that's coming up in a few months, but I don't want to talk about that, and I don't want to talk about, like, 
what happened over Christmas with a family member and, you know, that kind of thing. But we just live in a world where if you start talking to somebody for long enough, one of two things happens. Either everybody agrees on everything because we've created a world with just people who agree with us, or inevitably we start disagreeing on something. And it's easy to think nowadays that that is an American problem or maybe even a recent problem, like it's gotten worse since the pandemic. And I'm not, I'm not saying it hasn't gotten worse since the pandemic. I'm sure it has. But that's not an American problem. That's not a now problem. That's a people problem. It's, it's always been a problem. And, and we've been going through Philippians, and this was a Philippian problem as well. We, we hit a passage uh, last week, right at the very end. There were these verses where Paul starts to address two big problems that the Philippian church is having. And um, it's easy to kind of overlook them because he, he's going to go more in depth as we go through Philippians. But Paul, at this point, as we've said, he's in prison. And so the Philippian church is starting to have problems, and, and they, have, um, they have written to Paul and sent Paul, uh, a, a guy from their church, to come. And since they couldn't bring Paul back to solve their problems, they wanted to bring Timothy back, you know, Paul's right-hand man. Timothy's not in jail, so Timothy can come back to the Philippian church and sort things out, because we always need some kind of leader to tell us what to do. And, um, and in exchange for Timothy, it's like a trade, you know. Um, we'll give you Epaphroditus here if you'll give us Timothy. Well, the problem is Paul still needed Timothy. So instead of sending Timothy back, he sent Epaphroditus back with this letter. And so this is why Paul's writing, to, to handle these two major problems. And so I want to just uh, review by reading where we ended last week, which is in Philippians chapter 1. And I'm going to read, we're going to be in chapter 2 today, but I'm going to just read for you uh, the last few verses of chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. And I want you to kind of listen for the things that get repeated here because these are the problems that the Philippian church was having. Okay, so picking up in Philippians 1.27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here that I still have. You see, he dresses both problems here. The Philippian church at this point, they're having internal divisions. In fact, we'll see two people called by name. Can you even imagine? Like, not only is Paul calling you by name, but this becomes the Bible. And so we know of Euodia and Syntyche because they couldn't get along in a church. Like, I mean, we've all done it but we're not in the Bible for it. But, but this is what happens in Philippians. There, there has started to be this internal uh, division, and, and there are different factions or different groups, and there's supposed to be one church, but they're split. And while this is all going on, the Philippian churches, for the first time, they're starting to face external pressure of persecution because of their faith. And so they're trying to figure out what does it mean for us to be a church? How do we keep our church together, both internally and resisting the external pressure to fall away from the faith? And Paul has a solution 
for both of these problems. It's actually the same solution. It just looks a little different for each problem. But the solution is unity. And unity was as hard for them back then as it is for us. But unity for Paul meant both the church needed to be unified uh, internally. They're not going to make it if there are two churches meeting together. There has to be one church meeting together that can persevere and make it. And in addition to that, they need to know that they are unified with Christ. And what we normally think about that is like Christ has saved us, you know, kind of the baptism, we're joined to him in his death and his resurrection. But Paul means something even more than that, or maybe, you know, an implication of that, which is this. Their persecution, their suffering that they're seeing is just a sign that they are unified with Christ. Christ suffered, famously, you may have heard of that, and they're suffering as well, and they're suffering because of Christ. And therefore, they are unified with Christ, not only in their salvation, but also in what it means to follow Christ and follow him to the cross. And so these are the two ways that Paul is going to argue going forward here in this letter. He, he addresses the internal schism issue in chapter 2. When we get to chapter 3, he'll talk about the external persecution uh, issue. So today we're starting off what Paul thinks is the solution to their internal disagreements. Now, you might think, well, if, uh, if people are disagreeing with one another, the best way to solve that is to just explain to them all, like solve all of their disagreements, explain to them what they should therefore believe. And sometimes Paul does that, but he doesn't do it here. He doesn't believe that the solution is convincing everybody that he or anybody else is correct. He also doesn't think that the solution here is these two churches are disagreeing, therefore there should be two churches. We'll just have one church that thinks this and another church that thinks that. Now all of a sudden it's church growth. We've got two churches. You know, that's not his, um, that's, that's not his solution either. His solution is something a little different and he might, wants to make sure that they understand it. So we're going to read the solution in chapter 2 verses 1 through 4, but there's, there's something I want, I'm going to want you to look for. In, um, in, in the original text, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, like in the original language, this is one really long sentence. Um, and Greek can kind of do that. It'll, it'll get really long on you. In order for us to make any sense of it in English, the translators of the ESV have decided to, to separate it into three sentences. But these all come together, and from the way Paul is arguing, it's important to know that because Paul is really just going to say the same thing over and over and over again. He's going to say the same thing five times. The first three are in chapter two, and it's the same thing, but they're all going to be in parallel, meaning he's just saying the same thing with different words. And then he's going to make a contrast in verse three, and a contrast in verse 4, it's the same contrast, it just gets back to what he's been saying in verse 2. So Paul's not giving them like five different things to do. He's giving them one thing to think about that he thinks is the solution to them not being unified as a church. So um, we'll read it here. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, that's his command, and then how are they supposed to do that? And this is the five things. By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count one another more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So how is Paul 
commanding them to complete his joy. What is it that Paul wants more than anything else for this church? It's for them to be of the same mind. But what he means by the same mind here is not they agree on every little thing. Like everything that they believe about the Bible is all um, all on an equal footing, and they should all agree on that thing. The one mind is what comes next. They should be of the same mind. In other words, they should have the same love. It's not just that they agree on all opinions. It's that they all have the same love. They have the same mindset. They, um, it says in the ESV, uh, they are in full accord and of one mind. The word there for mind in the Greek is somewhere, probably we would think of it more as spirit. Um, so they should think the same, but the thing they should think is they should share the same love and they should all be unified in spirit around us. It means that they should um, not do anything out of selfishness, but in humility, think of other people as more significant than themselves, looking not only to their own things, but to the things of others as well. Now, nowadays, we think of, at least we give lip service, to humility being a virtue. Now, it might not be the virtue you necessarily want, but it's the virtue you want everybody else to have, right? Like, humility to us, we at least acknowledge, yeah, that's probably a good idea, however that works its way out. In the Roman Empire of this time, humility was not a virtue. If you use this word that Paul is using, it's always seen as a negative thing. And the reason for that is that their highest uh, virtue, the, the thing that they want most, their highest value in the Roman Empire, everyone from the emperor on down to the lowliest of slaves would agree it is personal honor. And so around this idea of personal honor, the Roman Empire had become a, a rigid social hierarchy. Meaning that um, depending on how much honor you had, it, it, it uh, would translate into where you were in the pecking order of the Roman Empire. Now, you may not know this, but uh, estimates have at least 30%, maybe even a little more than that, of the Roman Empire of this day were all slaves. And slaves, by definition, could have no personal honor. That's just the way they looked at slaves in that day. Now, you also had a group of people who had been slaves but had been set free, and they would always be known as freed people. They are people who had been slaves, but now they are freed. Now, that was obviously higher than being a slave, but it's lower than being someone who had the, you know, the honor in that they had never been enslaved. And so then you also have freedborn people. Some of them didn't have a lot of money. And then as you work your way up, you have people with more and more money. Now, you may think money and honor, that's like two different things. Like, just because you're wealthy doesn't mean you're honorable. Yes and no. <laughs> Somewhat naive. But... Um, in that day and age, what honor meant was not like your own personal individualistic code of living. What honor meant was you act in a way that benefits the community. And so who can benefit the community the most? The people who have the most money. And so if you want honor, but you have money, all you do is like a kid at Chuck E. Cheese, you change, exchange the money that you have that you'll never get around to using because you're fabulously wealthy for something that would bring you honor. 
So if there is a festival in town, you would provide money, uh, money to buy food for all of your community. Or if there is a public building that needs to be erected, you would pay for that public building and they put your name on it, something like that. And so in the end, the rich people ended up having the most honor and the poor people had less honor and then the slaves had no honor. And ultimately, your goal in all of this though is to move up the ladder in some way. Like, if you are a slave, what's the best thing that could happen to you? You would be freed. If you are a freed person, what's the best thing that could happen to you? Well, your children are never enslaved, and so your family has become freeborn through your children. If you have always been free, you hope to make a little more money so you can leverage whatever extra you have towards personal honor, make more connections, and work up the social hierarchy. And so when Paul commands the Philippians to solve their, uh, their unity problem by lowering themselves, they were probably thinking there, Paul, what else do you have? Couldn't you just tell us all what to believe and that would solve our problem? And he says, no, I want you to solve your problem by climbing not up the ladder, but climbing down the ladder. Look for other people to elevate around you. Consider their needs more important than your needs. But honorable people, their needs are the most important. It's the dishonorable people whose uh, who their needs aren't as important. And so this is the command that Paul gives them. And this is what he wants them to do. We're about to talk about Jesus for a few verses. But the whole purpose in talking about Jesus is to reinforce this command that nobody in that time period would ever want to do. Which is, instead of arguing and trying to get your way, go into relationships, especially within the church context of that day, looking to serve other people and elevate them, even if they disagree with you. And so that's, that's his application. This is his ultimate solution. This week, next week, probably even the next week after, in chapter 2, this is the solution for their disunity um, issues. But... He needs to explain to them why it is, give them more motivation, not just this command, but this is so countercultural, he wants to give them more motivation for this. So he brings up Jesus. In verse 4, he says, Let each of you, lo- or uh, verse 5, I'm sorry, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The, the Greek there indicates, you can see it even in the footnote if you have an ESV, um, which was also in Christ Jesus. This is the way that Jesus thought. What I'm commanding you to do, Jesus thought in this same way. And so he's going to offer Jesus as a model for how they should therefore think and live and behave in the church to gain unity. And so this is going to go uh, in three parts. Part number one, verse six. Who, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So what he's saying here is Jesus he, he's at the top of the ladder, you know? There's slaves, and there's freed people, and there's some equestrians, and there's some senators, and somewhere there's the emperor. Um, but if you kept going on the, you know, the hierarchy of the universe, it goes like maybe some angels somewhere, and then ultimately, you know, you get to Jesus, and Jesus is up at the top. So Jesus is at the top of the ladder. He's standing up here on the top, And when he stands on the top, it's not just Jesus on the top. He doesn't have to grab for that position. He hasn't had to like work his way up and, you know, he eventually like outwon everybody. He became a senator or something like that. He 
is at the top because he is God. He has always been God. He doesn't have to grab that. He doesn't have to hold on to that. Jesus is God. And then after that, he says, verse 7, but he, being God, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And so what he's saying here is Jesus, even though he was at the top of the ladder, being God, he decides to go down the ladder. Now, sometimes people get hung up on what does it mean, like, theologically, you know, that Jesus was God, but he emptied himself. Like, did he become less God, or, like, what did he put off? Was it, like, he's no longer omniscient, or maybe he, you know, doesn't have as much honor or something? That's not what Paul's saying. Notice Paul doesn't say that Jesus emptied himself of something. In fact, when Paul uses this verse elsewhere, he uses it five times total in the New Testament. On only one occasion does he say somebody emptied themselves of something. This, ver- this verb here, it, doesn't, it sounds like in English, if you empty something, it's emptied of something. But in Greek, it doesn't need an object. And Paul tells you what it means for Jesus to empty himself right after this. He doesn't empty himself by taking off his godness. He empties himself how? Next thing. By taking the form of a servant. Now, ESV has this hang up about translating a word that means slave as slave. So what they'll do is they'll translate a servant and give you a footnote. This is the word for slave here. But it's, it's important to point that out in this context because where is the slave in the social hierarchy? That's at the bottom. And so it's not even that Jesus went a little bit down the ladder. Jesus went from the top of the ladder all the way to the bottom of the ladder. And he did it not becoming less God, but becoming like us. When did this happen? This is Easter, or Easter. This is Christmas. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. Jesus emptying himself is Jesus becoming like us. It doesn't stop there. He not only emptied himself, but he also, um, verse 8, and being found in human form, he, and here's that key word again, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You see, not only does he lower himself to the foot of the ladder, he then dies the most shameful death that is possible to die as well. Jesus has gone from the top of the universe all the way to the bottom. But the question is, why? Why does Jesus do that? He does that not to win an argument with us, but to establish relationship with us. And he establishes relationship with us not when we have all the right opinions, but when we accept him because he has come to meet us. We could not climb the ladder all the way to get to Jesus. And so Jesus climbed the ladder down to get to us. And this needs to reshape the way we think about all of our relationships. In this context, Paul's talking about relationships with other believers in the church. Now, you may be here today and you may not be a believer, and we're so glad you came. I don't know how you got here, but I'm glad you're here. Um, but maybe one of your hangups, because I've had students talk to me about this at times. Sometimes one of our hangups is we think we have to like clean up our act to um, be acceptable to God and then somehow like be good enough to become a Christian. But the point Paul's making here is nobody can be good enough for Jesus. That's the whole point. Jesus came down to us. We don't go up to him. But if you are a believer, then this has to influence the way we think of others. You can't, on the one hand, give cognitive assent that Jesus died for our sins, and then on the other hand, tear apart relationships with other people who have relationships with Jesus just because they disagree with you, or because they're needy, or because it doesn't fit into what we want. 
See, it costs Jesus to come down the ladder. And in some level, for us to establish relationships of unity, it has to cost us something. And whatever it costs us, that cost is the reason we don't have more unity in our world today. If unity was easy and it benefited us and we could live the happy, healthy, Instagrammable lives that we wanted, just by having unity, everybody would have unity. But unity costs something. And it's frustrating and it's tiring. And that's why Jesus came. He came to have unity with us. But Paul doesn't even just end there. He keeps going. Verse 9. Therefore, God has, keyword here, highly exalted. In fact, the Greek, it says that. It doesn't just say uh, exalted. It puts the word uh, hyper before it. He hyper exalted him. He highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Nobody higher than Jesus. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This last little part here, Jesus Christ is Lord. This is what they used to say of Caesar. That Caesar is Lord, implying no one else is. But Caesar's not Lord. Caesar might be Lord on this ladder in the Roman Empire. But there's another ladder, and that's what Paul's saying. In the kingdom of God... Who is at the top of the ladder? Jesus is. But here's the key here on the logic. I want you to see this. Jesus isn't at the top of the ladder because he's God at this point. Notice what it says there at verse 9. Therefore. This is actually, there's two therefores for Greek. This is the stronger. For this reason. What reason? Because Jesus made the choices to go down the ladder. Because he humbled himself. For that reason, God elevates him to the top of the ladder. Well, what does that mean? It means that when Paul was telling the believers in Philippi to treat others as better than themselves, he's arguing that they should go down the ladder like Jesus, but he's also arguing that if God elevated and valued that in Jesus, God will elevate and value them as well in the end too. Now, I was talking about that uh, in a class the other day. Uh, we were talking about honor and shame in a New Testament survey class, and this, this passage came up. And I had a student ask a good question. He was like, but doesn't that make it kind of selfish? Like, doesn't that mean that, like, yes, we're lowering ourselves on the ladder, but we're really doing it because we're, like, just climbing a better ladder? And I said, yeah, I mean, on some level, kind of, although the way to elevate yourself is selflessness, and so, like, there's kind of a paradox there, I guess, in your thinking. I said, it, it does sound weird to us. But it's also partly because we don't really talk about these passages a lot in this way. This is something that's repeated throughout the New Testament. In fact, the last thing that Jesus told the disciples before he entered Jerusalem was this exact point. In fact, you don't have to turn there, but I I will. Um, This is in Mark chapter 10. Uh, You'll remember that James and John have brought their mom to get um, themselves a better place somewhere on the ladder, you know? And so uh, Jesus handles that more gracefully than I would. Um, But Jesus tells all the disciples, this is uh, John, or John, Mark, 10 verses 42 through 45. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. They're they're high on the ladder. Lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Not even slave of just one person, slave of everybody. For even the Son of Man, Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And what's Jesus' point here? 
This is how the economy of God works. The way honor looks in the Roman Empire looks a lot different than the way honor looks in the kingdom of God. And you know what? The Roman Empire doesn't exist anymore. It hasn't for 1,500 years. This is a very temporary ladder. And so the question becomes, who is it that you want to give you honor? Because even, let's say, Rome doesn't exist anymore, but America does. You can climb the ladder in America. We just have a different looking ladder, but you can climb it. But at some point, your life's going to end. And at some point, America will end. It's not going to be in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, Ultimately, the kingdom of God is here in the person of Jesus, and it will not end. And so we all have a choice in how we want to live our lives. Do we want to construct a life where we climb a temporary ladder, or do we want to construct a life where we climb a permanent ladder? And I don't always think that the motivation is like, I am trying to figure out where I am on the, you know, that's not the point. The point is one of more priority. Are we living for this world or are we living for the next world? Because you can't do both. The way the values work in one world is the opposite of the other. On uh, Tuesday, so my Tuesdays, um, this semester I have a really long day on Tuesdays. And it, it doesn't really like sound like it at the first because my day begins like at 11 a.m. Um, but I have to be at Criswell for chapel at 11 a.m. But after that, I have, and that runs probably 11 to 11.40, something like that. And then after that, I have a New Testament backgrounds class that's 12.15 to 1.30. Then I have a little bit of a break, which is also office hours for students. And then I teach a Greek one class that starts at 4.45 and ends at 7.15. I get a 15-minute break, and then I teach a New Testament survey class from 7.30 to 10 p.m. So by the time I'm like actually leaving, I've been there, you know, 11, going on 12 hours. Um, and so uh, this past Tuesday, I get to chapel, and chapel can sometimes be kind of a mixed bag. And this one was very much the mix. The guy, his major point was like, great, good, I'm not arguing against it. It was like, you should obey God. All of you should obey God. Now I'm like, that's great. That's amazing advice. We should all obey God. But the way he kind of rolled on from that and made his point, it kind of got into, if you obey God, God will bless these things or God will do these things. And it, it kind of like was starting to skirt the line, a little bit of prosperity, kind of, you know, we're trying to like exchange with God in some way, this kind of thing. And it got kind of to a weird point at the end and it closed. And that wasn't really what was disturbing to me. What was really disturbing to me is it also ran long. And so um, it cut my like 30 minutes to get a lunch to like 10 minutes to set up a class and I didn't get lunch. Um, so I was already kind of like just a little grouchy. Honestly, if there's heresy, but I get a lunch or a sandwich, you know, I take it better. Um, so anyway, um, I get through the, the backgrounds class, and then I go, and I finally get my sandwich. And, um, and I'm going back to my office uh, from kind of the break room, and I notice that there is a student who's outside the door for the other New Testament uh, professor. Her name's Dr. Moore. And um, the student, I, I haven't actually had the student. I've met the student before, but I have not had her in a class with me ever. She's not, like, currently my student. She's never actually been, like, a student of mine in my class. Um, but I, I just kind of look at her and I say, hey, are you waiting for Dr. Moore? And she said, yes. And I said, well, did you have an appointment? Because she's, she's like, currently in a class right now. Um, and she said, uh, no, I didn't. I just, I wanted to talk to her about chapel. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I, like, start to turn to my office, and I'm like... 
So I turned back around. I was like, would you like to talk to me? And she's like, can I? And I was like, yeah, yeah, you can. And so we sit down for like what is the one break of my day and we talk about chapel and there was a lot to talk about with that chapel. And so, um, and I'm happy that we did, you know, it sounds like I'm complaining, I'm not complaining. Um, but then I go, you know, almost immediately to Greek. I'm kind of run behind there. Uh, it's the second week of Greek one. And when you're in the second week of Greek one, you're like, everybody feels like we're three weeks behind. You know, it's one of those kind of things. And uh, I'm, it's like really a pep rally. Like you can learn Greek, you know, um, which they can, but you got to give a lot of encouragement there at the start. So anyway, it runs up like square on to time. And then some people have some questions, whatever. And then I've got like 10 minutes to get over to the survey class. It's going to run to 10 p.m. Um, and I haven't figured out how I'm going to eat dinner, you know, which mercifully it's not been that far since I had a sandwich for lunch. So <laughs> small blessings. Um, but anyway, I get in survey and survey by Criswell standards. Criswell's got like 150 to 200 students, but 32 of them are in this class. It's like a huge class by Criswell standards. And so I'm kind of like setting up the room and the whole thing. And mercifully a student who, um, came in. He was like, I have extra food for my dinner. Would you like some? I was like, thank you. So I ended up having his homemade, like he had some kind of like Mexican meat-ish dish. I'm not sure what it even was with some uh, rice and some salad. It was, it was actually really good. Um, And so then I teach and then we get a 10 minute break and uh, a student wanted to come up and talk about how she was trying to find me on uh, social media and was having trouble. And I was like, there's a reason for that. Um, Then she said, um, then she said, I found a Danielle Sanders. Um, She went to Georgia Tech in 03. Do you know her? And I was like, "Um, if that's not my wife, send me her details. Because if something happens to my wife, it feels like this is like my type of woman, you know? Um, So anyway, I teach for another hour and a half. And then we, we get to the end at 10, and guys, I have just, like, I've been run over by a bus, and then it backed up and hit me again. And, um, and, and so I had a student come up and want to know how he could read further, which is great. You know, I'm glad a student wants to learn more about what we're talking about. Then I had a student come up and wanted to know if I wanted to play Among Us with them. I was like, no. Um, then I had a student come up and say that he was going to talk the next day with a, uh, with a friend of his who had been openly talking about maybe committing suicide. And it's like 1020, I'm like, okay, let's talk about that, you know? And then we finished with him, and then another student came up at this point. I mean, she'd been waiting there half an hour, and she wanted to talk about chapel. And I'm like, okay, let's talk about that. And so in the end, I left campus at 1045. I mean, on my way home, Danielle's calling to make sure I haven't died. Um, And the next day, I mercifully don't have classes, and I didn't go in, um, so I, Kate had a uh, dentist appointment. I take Kate to the dentist appointment. I'm, I've, I'm reading this like bird, uh, this uh, book by Amy Bird, and it's really good, but I'm like super distracted. I'm kind of like thinking through, I'm like, God, I can't do this every Tuesday. And I think through, though, then what we're talking about in here today. And I'm like, but this is exactly what Jesus did. Like his time was not his own. And people who weren't his people, he went and found and made his people. And in the end, for all of us, the question is, what do we want? For me, do I want to get home before 11 or not? Well, you know, yes, if I want this and not so much if I want that, you know. But for all of us, the question is, in your relationships, would our world be better if more people chose to put others in front of them as opposed to the current, you know, political argument of just like yell at people? Would our relationships with our family, would they be better 
if ultimately what was important was the other person rather than us getting our way. And most importantly for here, what's the best case scenario for a church? We don't have a pastor right now, and that's always weird. But you notice, Paul didn't seem to think that the solution for them was to send Timothy. It was to send them instructions of how they should value one another. And so I hope we get the greatest pastor ever. That would be amazing, you guys. But like, the best case scenario for us, according to Philippians, for this year at church, is for each of us to start to look for something bigger. And when we come to church, come to church not so that we can be fed, but so that we can serve others. And maybe that looks for you like, you know, you aren't really plugged in and serving anywhere. Maybe, maybe that's figuring out, can you serve with kids or can you serve with high schoolers, whatever. But for some of us, we already are serving, but it's calling us to more. And it's, if there's somebody we don't know, maybe we strike up a relationship. If there's somebody in our community group that has a need, maybe instead of our heart going out to them, you know, maybe like something more goes out to them, something like that. Because ultimately, who we are in this place is a reflection of what world we're living in. And what Paul's calling us to is to live in the world that we will always be living in, not the world that operates by a different structure and will ultimately fade away. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for that he would be willing to descend the ladder to come and to find us. Father, I pray for each of us that you would ha- help us to refocus. For some of those, maybe for some of us, maybe we haven't ever met you, and I pray that today in some way we would see your attitude towards us. Um, and for that person that, that maybe um, they would see your hand reaching down for them. And for the rest of us, I pray that we would remember why it is that we have been saved and that we would extend that grace to others. I pray, especially as we serve communion, that it wouldn't be lost on us, the cost that our relationship with you has, uh, has had, with, had for us, and that we would realize that not only are we taking a gift that you gave, but we're, expe- we're expected to give a gift to others as well. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.